You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey Fireflies, welcome back to Outer Brightness. In this week's episode, we're going to bring you the rest of our discussion on creation. Did God create ex nihilo or ex materia? Since we posted last episode into several of the discussion groups on Facebook, we've had some really good interaction uh, there with listeners and with Latter-day Saints. Excited for that. I'll call out a couple of the groups where there's been good discussion. Evangelicals and Latter-day Saints, uh, there's been good discussion on our post there as well as Mormon and Biblical Discussion Group. We've had some good discussion there as well. So some of the questions that have come up, why in the previous episode we did not go into a lot of the biblical data uh, related to creation ex nihilo. Uh, The reason for that is based on the request from the Latter-day Saint missionary we received, we focused more on uh, the upstream and downstream theological implications of creation ex nihilo or creation ex materia. The last question in today's episode will focus a bit on some of the biblical data, uh, but again, it's not comprehensive. Uh, and again, the reason for that is because we wanted to focus on what are the implications of viewing creation as ex nihilo uh, or ex materia for the rest of your theology. Maybe in the future, we'll do an episode focused more on biblical data for ex nihilo uh, specifically, but we do get into some of that within the discussion threads on those Facebook groups that I mentioned. So if you're interested, uh, jump into those Facebook groups. Uh, you can join and uh, take a look at the discussion there. Uh, I'll add links to those discussions in the show notes for uh, this episode. Thanks for listening. We look forward to sharing the rest of this discussion with you. So let's get into it. Uh, you can do a short answer if you want on this, but do you believe that a God who can't create out of nothing is less worthy than a God, oh, less worthy of worship than a God who can? Paul, what do you think? I, I do think so. Um, and, you know, I, I said really early on when we started the podcast that, that my experience um, coming into Christianity uh, was that I experienced true worship for the first time. Um, I don't know. Looking back, I, I don't know what I was doing as a Latter-day Saint, but I, I do know that I was not worshiping God in the same way that I worship him now. Um so the gospel of John says, uh, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Um, and I think Latter-day Saints agree with that scripture. Um, if you look at the lectures on faith and what they have to say about, uh, knowing God, uh, it's, it's the first principle according to the lectures on faith. Um, and so it's, it's sobering to think about who God is and, so yeah, I think I think a God who cannot create everything uh, is less worthy of worship. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans one. Knowing God as Creator, um, it's it it enjoins us to worship. Why does it enjoin us to worship? Because God created all things, right? The Bible says that nothing came into being. The Gospel of John chapter one: Nothing came into being that is coming to come into being without Him. Uh, referring to Jesus Christ, the Word, the the God who was God with God and who was God. So um, I, I would ask a Latter Day Saint, what what or who are you are you worshiping, and how does that worship come about? Um, because knowing God is all powerful, Creator of all things, uh, knowing that my very existence is a result of His free choice to act and create that places me in a position where I can say thank you genuinely and from the heart because life is an amazing, beautiful thing. As a Latter-day Saint, I believed I always existed. I didn't come into being because God chose to create. I would have existed in some form 
regardless of what God chose as a Latter-day Saint. So, so yeah, that's, that's my answer to that question, Michael. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, Matthew, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Thanks Paul for that. That was great. And I wasn't really thinking about what you just said was kind of made me think of ponder about it for a little bit. The idea that just the fact that we exist at all is a gift from God, whereas Latter-day Saints, they existed already. And so that's a, it's a really poignant thought. So thank you for that. I'll have to think more about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's the God who reveals himself in scripture is the God who has created everything that he didn't require something to pre-exist eternally and reshape it to make us. Uh, so when you look at like Isaiah 44, 24, this is what the Lord says. He who is your redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth alone. Uh, it also says he's the causing the omens of diviners to fail, making fools of fortune tellers, causing wise men to turn back and making their knowledge ridiculous. So uh, he says, I am the one who, in verse 27, I am the one who says to the depths of the sea, dry up, and I will make your rivers dry up. It is I who says, Osiris, he is my shepherd, and he will carry out all my desire. And he says of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple, your foundations will be laid. So he he's in control of everything. He's created everything. He sustains everything, as Paul and, and you have said earlier. And uh, so, yeah, just, just the idea that not only did everything come into existence because of God's will, but he sustains its existence, as it talks about in Colossians, uh, does put give you a sense of awe and wonder, at least to me also, just as Paul is describing. And um, this idea that, that I believe does Latter-day Saints, that God was kind of following the game plan that had kind of already, already existed. You know, like when Lucifer said, well, I'm just doing what's been done on other worlds. Well, okay, so... There's this plan already laid out, and so God doesn't really have the free will to do anything but what has already been done. He kind of just has to do, he has to go with the program. Well, we don't believe that he's done that on other worlds, or that God has, or that other gods have created humans that they've ascended to Godhead. Like this, you know, as far as we know, this is all of existence. You know, God created it for his glory, and there's no other God, there's no other existence. So just that that idea, that idea to me, this idea that there is only one God in existence like him. And that it's not just following a program. It's it's God decided to make everything as he did because he chose to do it that way. It just makes, I don't know, for me, it makes it makes it more real. It makes it more unique rather than just feeling like, oh, well, there's this game plan that's been set forth, you know, eons and epics before God even existed as God. And, you know, everybody has to follow this plan. And these there's these eternal unchanging laws and we're supposed to follow these laws. But instead, God created everything and he made it the way he wanted it to be just makes the focus more on him rather than on us or on this plan that we're supposed to follow or all the laws that God has to obey and that we have to obey. So it's, it gives me more of a focus on God himself. Yeah, no, I, I love that, Matthew. Um, I love that verse that you shared too, where it says he's the maker of all things. And I mean, yeah, as a Latter-day Saint, maybe I thought it was a little bit more logical to be like, oh, God's not breaking the first love, <clears throat> thermodynamics, you know, creating, you know, matter can't be created or, or, destroyed um but honestly even if it's even if it feels logical it's boring to be honest you know there's nothing special about that it's like oh god's just like me he has to obey he's under all the laws of science instead of over all the laws of science and i do get a sense of awe and wonder at a god who can create something that science says cannot be done that is amazing um, we've, we talked about how, you know, there's theories out there in Mormonism where God, the first God that was ever out there may have walked this path without any help. And if we're the exact same, same kind of being, then we do not need this God at all. It completely takes away the need for God. It's like, yeah, I might go to the grocery store and, and maybe somebody helping me check out is nice, but there's also the self checkout and I can go do that just as easily like you don't need that middleman but in christianity there's absolutely a need for this god because we are not the same kind of being we are not able to ascend to heaven on our own we need this god that is over science he's over the problem of evil you know he does not rely on evil to exist like this is the god that i want to put my faith and my love and my trust in, and although I didn't think it was a big deal when I was a Latter-day Saint, I do now, and I do not want to give my worship to a God who has to use pre-existing material to create, because that being is just like me, and 
I'm not going to go worship another human being. Yeah, that'll preach, Michael. <laughs> Thanks. So I got a little carried away there. Uh, all right. So I did. I did say in the introduction of this episode that that this doctrine trickles down into everything else. So I want to talk about that a little bit um, here, um, starting with with you, Matthew. Um, in your opinion, does the mode of creation affect what happened during the fall? Does it change things? Yeah, when I was reading this question and thinking about it, it's kind of difficult just because it's hard to put myself out of where I am now, back to where I was before sometimes. So if we believe that God created everything from something that already existed, how does that affect the fall? Well, it it's strange. Well, it has. I think you have to go back to, to their view of this divine council that God assembled all the gods together, as it says in Abraham, and then they decided this plan and they proposed a savior. And there were two that volunteered. There was Christ who volunteered and promised free will. And then Satan volunteered also, and he promised that everybody would be saved. And so Jesus's plan was chosen. And so when you go back to that and how that, that flows into the fall, it's, it's, um, it's difficult to understand why you would want to trust God when he gave two contradictory commandments in the garden, when he gave the command to be fruitful, multiply, but also not to partake of the fruit. And so in Christian theology, we don't have that issue, but uh, in LDS theology, they were contradictory commands and it was impossible for them to have children in the garden, but God still created everything set up that way, almost to want them to sin. You know, in Christian theology, we don't believe that God forced them to sin or that they even had to sin theoretically, hypothetically, I guess you could say in that kind of sense, they could have remained in the garden, but they didn't. They, they willingly chose to sin. And so when you think about creation from nothing, uh, it, it's uh, versus uh, ex materia, since we're, all, since we're all intelligences and we're all organized, it seemed like God had already chosen Adam and Eve, like specific intelligences to fulfill that role, knowing that they would sin. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. There's a lot of things that I've thought about this and tried to understand how it would affect the fall. And I'm trying to make connections there with my head, but it's a little bit of a struggle just because there's so much involved with this idea of being creating from nothing versus creating out of matter. So maybe you guys can try to fill the gaps or try to connect something that I've been trying to make. Yeah, it's totally okay, Matthew. I actually don't remember what I was even thinking when I wrote the question. So I, I don't blame you. Um, but <laughs> Paul, do you have any, any thoughts? And I'll, I'll weigh in a little bit on it. With that admission, no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, uh, I, I think it can affect it, and I'll, I'll kind of talk through why I think so, and and see if we can get to an answer. So, uh, Michael, you and I wrote an article together uh, in which we kind of called out the fact that on on Mormon theology, God didn't really give us free agency if we were already autonomous intelligences. Um, so free agency is not really a gift given, uh, by God on, on Mormonism. Um, it's something we already had. Uh, and if that, if that is the case, then, uh, creation ex materia, uh, definitely does, does affect the fall, right? Because, um, you know, uh, how would, how would God on Mormonism foreknow that, uh, Adam and Eve would fall, um, if not, from the fact that he knew he was creating from autonomous beings already that he couldn't control. Um, and, you know, Mormon is, Mormons uh, lately do, do kind of tend to walk into that, uh, that kind of um, open theist view where God isn't in control of everything and, and isn't sovereign and is, is uh, constrained by the will of man. Um, so there's that. Uh, how would creation ex nihilo affect the fall? Um, God would freely choose to create beings uh, and give them free will, at least with regards to Adam and Eve. Um, I think both uh, Arminians and Calvinists would agree on that point, that Adam and Eve were fully free uh, to choose how to act. Uh, God would also foreknow how they were going to act. Um, and so the plan uh, would be a plan uh, devised uh, or ordained, if I'm going to use a Calvinist term, uh, by God from the beginning, uh, from before the foundation of the world. 
uh, as is said uh, of Jesus Christ, the, was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So all of it would be uh, the plan of God and would be fully uh, under the sovereignty of God. Um, you could get into the difference, some differences uh, between Calvinists and Arminians from the fall forward, um, but the, from creation through the fall, uh, I think Calvinists and Arminians are, are fully agreed uh, that it is all uh, the plan of God. Whereas, as you were uh, pointing out, um, Matthew, uh, with your sly reference to the temple uh, ceremony, uh, on Mormonism, God is just doing what has been done on other worlds. It's one eternal round over and over and over again, uh, which, as Michael pointed out, is boring. Well, it's, it's predictable, yeah. <laughs> I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think I'm starting to kind of get the wheels turning here a little bit, but uh, some of the things that are interesting, if, if God created everything ex materia, what that means for the fall is that first of all, Adam and Eve were eternal beings and they'd been eternal beings for eternity uh, before this, uh, this moment when they suddenly become mortal. And so it's, it's a, a much bigger deal, I guess, in that sense for them to be mortal. But it's also kind of like, well, if they're eternal beings, then what what right does God have to turn them mortal for disobeying him? If they're, I mean, they, they seem kind of equal. It seems odd for them to <clears throat> have to follow his His commandments down here. Uh, but uh, But one thing that's interesting, too, is that, you know, in the temple video, you know, you've got you've got Lucifer coming and saying, I'm, I'm just doing the same thing that's been done in other worlds, basically meaning I know that this is the plan that they're supposed to fall and I'm here helping it along. So why are you punishing me for doing your will? Like it actually makes Satan the good guy because God is giving them contradictory commandments that they cannot keep. And then there's Lucifer actually pushing the plan along. Uh, the other big issue is uh, that if we were all created ex materia and we were spirits, you know, we were all present in the pre-existence. We all made the uh, conscious decision to come to earth and to obey God's commandments. And then he sent us here, but erased all of our memories and then uh, condemns us based on our wrong decisions. And that just doesn't uh, seem like a God that is uh, benevolent, if you ask me. Um, to erase our memories and then retest us after we're already loyal to him. Um, I mean, I just can't imagine doing something like that to my kid. Like I'm going to erase your memory and then test you and see if you can get back to me. It's like, just not my thing, I guess. Uh, so those were some of my thoughts on that. Um, but let's, let's move on to the next thing here. Hold up. Uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So just, uh, you know, we were talking about Gnosticism earlier. Um, Gnosticism, Gnosticism taught uh, that there was this demiurge, this lower divine being who created uh, the physical, the evil physical world, and that he entrapped the aeons who were eternal beings in this evil physical world. And the secret knowledge is how to uh, ascend out of this evil physical world. Um, that. I know, you know, I don't want to get into parallelomania, but that sounds very similar to what you were just describing uh, from the temple video, right? But even, even more than that, um, the Book of Mormon presents God as kind of tricking Adam and Eve into partaking of the fruit by giving them the contradictory commandments. They can't keep both, so they have to break one to keep the other. They have to partake of the fruit in order to procreate. And, you know, the Book of Mormon clearly teaches us, Adam fell that men might be. Um, it's a free choice, according to Mormonism, on Adam's part. But it's it's still kind of a deception to, to as you were pointing out, Michael, they, they had been, on Mormonism, they had been eternal beings for eternity. So it's, it's, just, it's almost a way of entrapping them in a mortal probation. Um, now I, I I know Mormonism escapes that through their whole cosmology, where from from the the council in heaven, it's presented that they freely chose 
to enter that we all freely chose to enter mortality. Right. Um, but it's, it just strikes me how many similarities there are uh, to Gnosticism within Mormonism. And when you consider the connection with Freemasonry and Smith's connection, Smith's familial connection with Freemasonry, it's not surprising. Yeah. No, I mean, it, the more you're talking about it, the more I'm just like, man, that really does sound super familiar. So that, that is crazy. And uh, yeah, that is a lot of stuff that I hadn't really considered. I was just going to add one quick thing at the at the end of our discussion that came to mind. If we think about how we are eternal beings and we all practice our free agency, don't we believe, didn't, didn't Latter-day Saints believe that Adam and Eve were the most righteous, basically apart from Christ amongst all the children of God? And that's why they were chosen to be the first. Yeah, so I think they, I've heard that. <clears throat> so they were among the most righteous of God's children and they were chosen to be the first children. And yet they were put in a position to where they were supposed to disobey. Does that seem like it doesn't make a lot of sense? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Like God, God's like, all right, you're the ones that will do exactly as I tell you. Uh, So now go down and do something that's going to completely confuse you. And one way or the other, you're going to basically be forced to disobey. And then when you think about it more, it kind of makes the fall a good thing. You know, when we read the Bible, it talks about how the fall brought death, it brought disease, it brought corruption, it brought sin, it brought all these negative things on not just humanity, but creation. And Latter-day Saints do believe that a lot of these bad things came, but ultimately it was good. It was good that they sinned because otherwise we couldn't come to be. So when we believe this pre-existence with God and that these righteous ones came to earth and that they were basically kind of almost forced to sin, like they, did, they really didn't have much of a choice, right? It was either, well, you sin one way or the other. That's That's one way why it kind of, linchpins him into the position where it has to be good. The fall has to be good, no matter how you look at it. So that's just one thought I had. Yeah. One, one thing that's that, that does too, is it, um, in my opinion, it takes the first sin away from, from Adam and Eve and it places it on God for putting him, putting them in that position in the first place. I mean, I think immediately you're, you're stuck with not having a holy God who's going to force sin on you when you're not, a sinful creature yet. And the other thought that just came to my mind too is, uh, you know, it's kind of crazy because in the preexistence we made, you know, supposedly we all made this conscious decision that we're going to come down and we're going to uh, keep our first estate and take bodies. But then all of our agency is placed on Adam and Eve where they have the choice to override all of our choice to come to earth if they just decide never to eat the fruit and it's like, well, how's that fair? Because that impedes our agency <clears throat> if they don't eat the fruit. Uh, do you guys have any other thoughts or should we move on to the atonement? Okay. Um, you are listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness, Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. How does the mode of creation affect the atonement? Paul, I'll go to you first on this one. Pass. No, I'm just um, how does the fall, how does the mode of creation affect the atonement? Um, so the atonement comes about because of the fall. The fall places us in a situation uh, where we are at odds with, uh, with God. Um, I think both Mormonism and Christianity would agree on that point. Uh, Mosiah 319, then for the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam. And will be forever and ever unless he yields the enticings of the Holy Spirit and become a the saint. <laughs> I don't know how the rest of that goes. I was close, um, but so the so the fall places us in in at enmity with with God. 
Um, and the atonement is the solution to that. Um, Jesus came and, and died for our sins. Um, there's possibly a significant um, separation of the paths between Mormonism and Christianity at that point um, because of Mormonism's teachings about the Garden of Gethsemane and that the atonement took place there um, rather than on the cross. And uh, there are many Mormons who still believe that that's uh, an important doctrinal difference for them um, because it, according to them, it, uh, it means that God only required the obedience of Christ and didn't require a sacrifice for sin. Um, and so therefore they, they, they see their view of, of the atonement as being superior because um, God's not bloodthirsty uh, to put it in, in pretty stark terms. Right. Um, but if you're talking about creation ex materia, we've, we've talked a lot tonight about, you know, how Latter-day Saints try to get around some of Joseph Smith's more thorny teachings towards the end of his life um, about multiple gods by saying, well, maybe Elohim is the first. Um, well, if Elohim is the first, as we've talked about tonight, um, we don't need this mortal probation to, uh, to walk. If we are co-eternal with God, um, we could just simply figure it out on our own uh, how to do what Elohim did. Um, creation ex nihilo. How would that, how would that affect the atonement? And I'm just trying to talk to get to an answer guys. So if you guys want to jump in, <laughs> uh, God, God chooses to create. Um, why does God choose to create? Um, God is Trinity, um, father, son, and Holy spirit, eternally one God. Uh, there is love experienced by the three members of the Trinity and for one another. And the decision to create is a decision of love to share what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have with the creatures that would be created. Um, so now, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw something, throw something in, there. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got a couple of thoughts, so maybe I can uh, grease the wheels a little bit. So, so one thought that came to me is, you know, if this is this pattern that is continually going on, you know, Jesus himself would have come to earth and he would have been earning his own exaltation too. So I think that's a huge difference in the atonement right there, um, that, that Jesus is doing it not solely as an act of, uh, I guess, grace for us, but it's also going to have a selfish element to it where this is part of my um, ascendance into heaven, which and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I find it troubling to think that a... Uh, a finite being, one who had not been perfected yet, somehow was able to perform an infinite atonement. Um, but you also mentioned, Paul, uh, that Latter-day Saints will say their version of the atonement is superior because they're not saying that God is bloodthirsty, right? That there was, uh, there's, there's evil and it's always there. And so, you know, God was just giving us a way out of a predicament that naturally exists, whereas they'll accuse us of saying, well, God uh, saved us from the punishment of his own sin. And they'll try to say that God is a moral monster because he was going to throw us down to hell and he just saved us from himself. So that's, that's one thing that I've heard Latter-day Saints bring up quite a bit. I don't know if you, if you guys have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah. And that, that, that brings us back to uh, God as creator, right? Um, Paul, Paul's point in Romans one is that, kind of the, the beginning of sin is a failure to recognize who God is as our creator, right? Um, the, and that we owe him our worship and allegiance. Um, that's the whole point of Romans 1. And that's kind of the beginning of sin is just not recognizing who God is as creator. <clears throat> and, and what I mean by that is, uh, like I said before, we owe our very existence to him without, without God's free choice to create you, Matthew, and I would not be here, and no one else would either. Um, and so when you owe your very existence to God, um, that does place you in a position where your allegiance and your your worship and your trust and your um, 
your everything is is owed to God. Um, on on the Mormon view, why why would you worship? Why what what is what is sin? Right? Uh, does God have on the Mormon view? Does Elohim have the right to punish sin on other eternal beings? Why would he? It's I, I can't think of a reason why he would, but having a creator God who created everything that is ex nihilo, that God does have the right to punish sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it really does, because, you know, if, if we're co-eternal with God, I mean, that's like a co-worker following you home from work and pulling you over and giving you a ticket for speeding or punishing you for your job that you do at work. It's like, dude, you don't have the authority to, you know, write me up or fire me or anything because you're my coworker. And it's like, you're not perfect either, dude. So yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying there. Um, another thing too, that, that I thought of is the way the atonement works. And I don't know if, if you can argue that this is a natural production of creation ex materia, but you know, you've, all, all the atonement does in Mormonism is it just paves the way for you to then progress on your own with God's help a little bit. And I think that makes sense if you're an eternal being um, already and you've got that potential where you maybe you could have become a God on your own without any help from a deity, that the atonement would work in such a way that you're kind of pulling yourself out of the muck. Um, and I know a lot of Latter-day Saints will disagree with my terminology there, but uh, with creation ex nihilo, I mean, uh, yeah, it, I think it makes more sense. Like this God has to jump in and save us. We're not eternal beings. We're not gods in embryo. Um, we actually do need him to reach down and save us. We do not have that capability ourselves. Um, what do you think, Matthew? Any thoughts on on this? I can't hear you, Matthew. I think we lost you. Okay, sorry. I, yeah, I'm reading myself. Yeah, so piggybacking off what you guys were talking about, um, if we go back to what we were talking about, how God made this, well, God didn't make this plan. This plan has always existed. It's, it's been happening in other worlds. People have been placed in this mortal probation. They've been tested and they've received exaltation. And it's been happening over and over and over again. And it's like Paul said, God is, didn't really freely choose to do that. You know, It's kind of like a package deal that's always been there. And God is kind of forced to do that. He's, he's like, he has no other choice but to send his son to die for every single person. And so we could think of it as more of something that God owes to us because we as eternal beings were his children. Well, he owes that to us because he, I'm his child. So he owes me an atonement. And because it's a plan that's been set forth long before he was ever God, well, then I deserve that plan and he has to provide that. For me. And so when we think about it that way, the focus really is on us and what God can do for us, and provide for us, rather than like we've been saying all along, pointing it, pointing us back to God and just seeing how gracious and how merciful he is that he decided to first create us anyway, because he didn't even have to. Um, he was completely self-sufficient and completely happy and, you know, in eternity past before we were existing. So to, to decide to even create us for one thing is a huge act of condescension on his part. And two, to save us simple creatures as an act of grace on his part is, and it's not something that we that we do that, that demonstrates that we deserve it. And it's not something that we earn. It's, it's nothing like that. It's something that he gives completely freely by his own choice. It, it affects the atonement in, in that sense. It, it's, it just completely sheds us of any pride or any thought that we deserve any kind of uh, treatment. You know, it's not something that we agreed to in a council and before we came to this earth and we all signed the dotted line. So now God has to keep his end of the bargain. It's nothing like that at all. God does it completely by his own free will and choice. And, and uh, he does that out of grace and mercy and love for us. Yeah. The, the thought that came to my mind is, you know, the, the Mormon God, the whole, um, the whole LDS plan of happiness, it's really kind of akin to like God bought a franchise. It's not something that he created. It's just something that he, you know, bought a, bought ownership of, but it already is supposed to function a certain way. And there's expectations that come from that. And it's really not as impressive as starting your own business um, or starting your own thing and then being able to set all the rules. And that's, that's really our position as a Christian is that. Yeah. But Michael, yeah, what, what? don't you realize 
you yourself can have your own franchise. You just got to get your own children underneath you. It's really a cool deal. Yeah. I just, <laughs> my, my children that already exist out there somewhere and are just waiting for me to, to come put them together. Just waiting for you to pitch the pyramid scheme to them. Yeah. It's just, you know, eternity's gone by and I'm pretty sure that they've already like figured out how to form themselves. And how do I know that they're not already gods laughing at my inability to reach that position already? They're looking at you, you know, they're, they're like looking at the kid who's the, the, uh, the son of a, you know, a huge entrepreneurial, you know, businessman, you know, he's like the Billy Madison, you know, you're like the Billy Madison, you know, you're, you're drinking and getting high by the, by the pool every day. And they're like, come on, man, I want to get to earth already. Good waste of my time. Okay. But what's the penguin in that analogy? (laughs) That's Satan in the garden. (laughs) Instead of oh a serpent, God. it's a penguin. All right. So getting back on topic, let's uh, let's conclude the conversation today. Um, let's just kind of go around and uh, and talk about any any Bible verses that you want to, any final thoughts that you would like to share with Latter-day Saints. Um, Matthew, you want to go first on this one? Sure. I think we might have already quoted it earlier, but when we were talking about this or preparing for it, the passage that comes to my mind is Colossians chapter 1. And a lot of scholars actually think that this was actually in response to some first kind of proto-Gnostics that were starting to grow in that region. So it wasn't like full Gnosticism, but there were some weird groups that had some strange ideas that were starting to grow that had similar ideas to what would later develop into full Gnosticism. Um, there were there was a possibility of people that were worshiping angels. There was, uh, when we talked about the aeons and the demiurges, that it wasn't a true and the holy God that created everything, but they believed that there was some kind of aeon or demiurge that created the earth that had kind of evil ideas. So some people think that this is Paul's rebuttal of those ideas by directly demonstrating that Christ is the perfect image of God and that he created everything. It's not some evil God. It's not some other God. It's not some lesser God, but it's Christ who is God created everything. So in Colossians chapter one, starting with verse 15, it says, Christ He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of, the, of his cross. And so I think whether it's creation, um, fall, the atonement, glory, all of that is made for God, for his glory, and it's made by God, and it's, it will be reconciled to God at the end of all things. So everything will be reconciled to God, whether we are glorifying God uh, by worshiping him in eternity or whether we will be punished for our sins, all things are, will be reconciled eventually. And so when we look at the crossroads of time, um, God created everything for him. And I don't, and there's nothing there that that's not listed, whether it's on earth or in heaven, well, that already includes everything visible or invisible that again, already includes any, everything. You can either see it with your eyes or you can't see it. There's no third option. And uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So Paul's making it abundantly clear that everything that exists was made by God for God for the glory of God and all, all things will be reconciled to God. Eventually it doesn't mean universalism. It just means that all things are made and will be, will, will be used for the glory of God. And so that's why I think that that's a really powerful passage. I think that points to creation uh, ex nihilo, just the idea that everything is created and exists because of God's power and by his sovereign grace. Um, There are certainly other passages I think you could point to, but to me, this is the most, the most powerful. And all of it is for God's glory. It's to pointing to him. It's not for us. It's not to make a testing ground for us to prove whether we're worthy of eternal life or exaltation or something. Um, God certainly participates, allows us to participate in the divine nature by his mercy, but the the creation is, is for God's glory primarily. It's not for our glory. Yeah. Um, so, so Matthew, where it says there <clears throat> that, uh, that he creates all things, including principalities and, and thrones, then, I guess I, don't, I hope I'm not saying the obvious here, but I mean, it sounds to me like there was no 
uh, force of evil before creation that was warring against God. Like, it, would you say it's pretty clear that doesn't exist according to that that passage? Yeah, I would say that's true. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure that we that we state that because uh, it, it says it pretty clearly, but I just wanted to, to make sure. Uh, all right, Paul, this is your, your, your time to shine. You got any passages for us? Uh, yeah, I've got a few. I, I, sorry about my dog. Um, I, right now, of course, I alluded earlier to John one, three, um, where it says all things came into being through him. Uh, the hymn here being referred to as the word, the logos. Uh, all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Um, that's clear enough, but I've had Latter-day Saints argue against it and say, well, it's only referring to things that um, came into being, right? So there are things like intelligences that did not come into being. So we were not created. Okay, so moving on. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Uh, presumably, uh, intelligences would be visible. Uh, presumably, uh, chaotic, uh, unorganized matter uh, that the world would be made out of would be visible. Uh, it's visible now to us. The, the, the universe is visible now to us via a telescope, um, including black holes and, and other uh, things within uh, the universe. So um, again, though, going to Romans 4.17, um, this one uh, just completely obliterates, I think, uh, the Latter Sa Latter-day Saints' ability to uh, try to walk back from John 1.3. Uh, in Romans 4.17, Paul says that God is the one who, quote, gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So, um, you know, my, my theology professor, Jack Cottrell, writes in his book about this passage, uh, his book, uh, God Most High, uh, God the Creator, Ruler, and Redeemer. Uh, Jack Cottrell says, quote, Here, the two greatest works in the repertoire of omnipotence are laid side by side, calling life into existence out of its opposite and calling being into existence out of its opposite non-being or non-existence itself. There is no more forceful statement of creation from nothing in the Bible or anywhere. And then uh, Revelation 4.11 um, says of God, quote, you created all things and because of your will, they existed or were created. Here, John says not only that God created all things, but that of him, all things existed. So, um, the, the challenge that Latter-day Saints use that, that the creation, cre doctrine of creation ex nihilo comes late, it comes after the Bible, um, I just don't think that stands up when you actually look at the New Testament as a whole and you look at what uh, Jews believed uh, about uh, the Old Testament and, and the Creator God. All right. I'm glad you brought up the Hebrews one. Um, I was going to talk about that one, but I think you talked about it a lot better than I was going to. Um, so I'm just going to point the listeners to, uh, the very beginning of the old Testament in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now I know as a Latter-day Saint, I would probably try to say, well, I'm sure, you know, the original language doesn't say, you know, created, or it can be translated or that's not translated correctly, you know, pretty standard, uh, LDS response. So today I was like, I wonder what the Pearl of Great Price says. So I went to Moses chapter two, and lo and behold, it still uses the word created, uh, which I thought was really interesting because it's uh, it's inaccurate uh, for in LDS theology to say that God created anything because he doesn't create anything in Mormon doctrine. He only forms things um, out of pre-existent material. And so I thought, well, maybe uh, maybe Moses two will you kind of talk about things differently, but it is almost identical to the Genesis account in the Bible where he says, uh, I said, let there be light. And there was light. Uh, he doesn't say I formed the intelligence and turned it into light. Um, and then I said, let there be a firmament, let there be, you know, all the, all the plants. And it's just his word 
creating these things and you don't see any of the work uh, being done, which would need to be done if it was being formed by these, uh, these intelligences. So I thought that was really telling that even according to the Pro of Great Price, you don't get this, uh, this clear message. And it seems to, to point more to the Protestant position of uh, ex nihilo. Yeah, I'm glad, glad you brought up Genesis 1. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. On Mormonism, uh, God lives on a planet near the star Kolob. Uh, did that God create the heavens and the earth? Or did that God shift around some planets to make a space for his children? Um, yeah, Genesis 1 doesn't really work with uh, with what Joseph Smith later claimed uh, about what Bao Rao means, <laughs> whatever he claimed in the, in the King Follett discourse. Um, so, yeah, thoughts on that? Yeah, although I'm not sure if um, maybe you guys would know. When it says he created the heavens and the earth, I know a lot of times Jewish thought was that the heavens was just like, the heavens, there were the various levels of heaven, you know? So was that speaking of everything or just the heavens surrounding the earth immediately? You know what I mean? Yeah. But even if it was just the heavens surrounding the earth, it still says he created it. Um, and it's still, I still don't see in the Genesis account anywhere, mm-hmm. any sort of evidence that, that there was a putting together of anything. It's just, it wasn't, he spoke it into existence and then it's there. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know if I don't know the exact answer to your question. I was just trying to think of how a Latter Day Saint apologist might respond to that. Yeah, it, it's just funny because uh, I would. It, it's sort of a double edged sword for them to respond to it because uh, a lot of times I would hear them say, uh, I'd hear Protestants talk about the uh, the three heavens, right? Like Paul, uh, Paul says he saw the third heaven, and they're like, oh, well, that's. Uh, one heaven is just the atmosphere and the other one's outer space. And I'd be like, well, that's ridiculous, but you can't say it's ridiculous for that. And then turn around and say, it's ridiculous for Genesis. Like it's, it's going to be consistent uh, all the way around. But uh, yeah. Any, any final closing thoughts, guys? Did I ever tell you guys my uh, ex Nilo joke? (laughs) (laughs) No, but let's hear it. Okay. So uh, the other day I was praying and I was, I was thanking God for creating the world and the universe and all the heavens. And, and he responded and said, Oh, it was nothing. Mm, good one. Good. <laughs> I was hoping it would be a bar joke, but it wasn't a bar joke. Sorry. All right, like, fireflies. That's it for this topic. Feel free to share your thoughts in the outer brightness group on Facebook. Is there an aspect of this topic we missed something you'd like to see us discuss in the future? Let us know. Next week, we will have a special guest on, our friend Herman. And by Herman, I mean hermeneutics. Until then, shine bright, fireflies. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One.
promise that we, as your church, would remain upon this rock and the gates of hell.